May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable. In your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. I'm going to continue uh, preaching on Elijah. Last week we looked at the story of Elijah and his showdown at Mount Carmel. Um, Elijah, of course, the prophet of God who ministered. Uh, to Israel about 800 years before the time of Christ, God sent Elijah to the people of Israel to remind them that he was God. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God and not Baal. And we talked about how last last time we talked about how Baal was one of these uh, gods of the uh, neighbors of Israel. He was believed to be the God of fertility, the God of the storm, the God of lightning. And we saw how God proved in 1 Kings 18, this showdown at Mount Carmel between, um, it was 1 verses 450 or so, is one standing for God and 450 prophets of Baal. And, um, and God demonstrated that he indeed was the true Lord. Uh, and he sent fire, perhaps it was lightning, uh, to consume the altar, the stone, the dust, the wood, the sacrifice, and lift up the water around the altar, proving that he indeed was God. The people got the message. They fell flat on their face and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So that's why God sent Elijah during this time to remind the people of God that he alone, Yahweh, is the true and living Lord and to serve him only. In every age, the people of God need to be reminded of this. And in every age, we're tempted to worship the gods of um, our age and our culture. And so we have to watch ourselves. Now, sometimes that takes extreme. There are extreme examples, extreme manifestations of idolatry, even in the churches. I received an article this week. Somebody sent me about how in one denomination, which I'm going to not name, but we're very familiar with it, um, one denomination at certain times have, uh, has allowed pagan worship to come into the cathedrals. So in the 1990s, there was a prominent cathedral that allowed goddess worship. And they, they, they celebrated the goddess Kali, a Hindu goddess. They celebrated an Egyptian goddess, Isis. And uh, there was a, another goddess, a Tibetan goddess. This was happening in the 90s in a cathedral here in the United States. And then closer to our time in North Carolina... They allowed some members of a temple dedicated to goddess worship to come in and perform a ceremony. And then even closer to our time in 2014, some of you, many of you probably know about this. 2014, the National Cathedral allowed Muslims to come in and pray to their God. And they started Friday prayers in the National Cathedral. So those people who were in leadership positions were bowing to the God of this age, which says, you know, However you want to worship God or name God is okay as long as it's fulfilling to you. And we can kind of mix it all together and it doesn't really matter. But you know, those of us who would never do that, never countenance that, um, would never pray to a God other than the God of the Bible, we have to watch ourselves too, don't we? Because there are gods, more subtle gods of this age that we can be tempted to worship or to put our trust in. You know, one definition of idolatry is anything or anyone who you um, 
anything or anyone where you look to this thing or this person for ultimate security can be an idol. Or anything, anyone that you build your identity around, your ultimate identity around, can be an idol. And so we can think about many things in our culture that, that we're tempted to build our life upon or find security in. Money, possessions, status, uh, our, our, our um, ability, success, those sorts of things, even our health. We can fashion anything into an idol if we look to that thing for our ultimate identity and security. And so what God wants to do in these stories is remind his people to trust in him alone. He's the true and living God. And so in this story, I see two main points here to remind the people of Israel to serve God alone, the true God. Two reasons to trust in him alone and not the false gods of the age. And one is that this God is a God of provision, of miraculous provision. And the second thing is this is a God of power, of power that's even greater than death. And so let's look at this story here from uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. <clears throat> First of all, we see God's provision. And at the beginning of the story, God has sent Elijah to Zarephath. This is in the middle of a drought. Remember, we talked about this again last time, that God, through the prophet Elijah, had predicted that he is going to send a drought to Israel. Why? To discipline Israel, to turn them back to God. Because under the influence of the king at that time, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel, they were turning to false gods. They were beginning to worship idols. And so God is sending this drought with the purpose of turning them back to himself. And that's what he did in 1 Kings 18. Well, this happens before that. God, I think, is preparing uh, Elijah here for uh, a great and, and mighty work uh, when, he, uh, when he sends him to the widow of Zarephath, he's preparing him for something even greater in the next chapter. But um, what we see is God sending him to Zarephath. And that's significant. That place is significant because that's pagan territory. In fact, this is in the area of Sidon or Phoenicia, which is modern day Lebanon. And if you remember, Jezebel is from this area. And Jezebel's father was a king in this in this region. He was king of Tyre. And he also was a high priest of Baal. And so God is sending Elijah back into this territory, pagan territory, where it's, it's, it's a center of Baal worship. And he's doing this to demonstrate something. That his power doesn't have any boundaries. Doesn't stop at any border. That his power, he has power even in pagan lands. And I think the second thing his compassion knows no bounds because he's going to show great compassion to this widow woman. And it's really kind of a pitiful scene when Elijah approaches the city and he sees this widow. And of course, widows in these days in biblical times were the most vulnerable. There's no safety net. <coughs> and and she has no one really to depend on other than herself. And she um, is at the city gates, which is kind of like the town square. And she's gathering a couple of sticks. You can imagine her just kind of bending down in this dusty, dry, concrete, hardened kind of ground that hasn't seen any rain or dew. And, uh, and she's picking up these sticks. And he calls out to her. He sees her. She's the one. 
God spoke to her and said, there's a widow there that's going to provide for you. And he calls out to verse 10, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she's going, okay, so that's a little test. And she responds and he says, oh, by the way, how about a little morsel of bread? A little, not too much, just I'm just asking for a little crumb, a little morsel that fits into your hand because obviously he's. He's hungry and he's thirsty. And she responds, I've got nothing. I've only got a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil of, in a jug. And she's explaining her desperate situation. I'm gathering a couple of these sticks here. I'm going to go and prepare for my son, myself, a last meal. We're going to eat this and we're going to die. We're surely going to die. She's without hope. And she's been looking to Baal, the god of rain and fertility, the storm god to provide. It hasn't happened. And so she's without hope. And then he gives her this promise. Um, and this is, the, this, is, this is where hope comes in a hopeless situation, and that is the promises of God to her. He says, The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. In other words, God is going to supply your needs until this drought is over. If you trust the word that I'm speaking to you, which is the word of God. So go bake, bake this cake. Give me some. And then you're going to see God's promise fulfilled. One commentator said this, that faith is the step between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. It's that middle ground. It's that risky place. You hear the promise of God. You feel the prompting of God to step out in faith. But until you step out in faith, you don't receive the the fulfillment. And so she's being tested here. She's in that middle place between fear and faith. And she believes at some level in the promise of God because she takes the step of faith. And then she sees that this promise was indeed fulfilled. The flour was not spent. The oil did not run out. This God of Israel, not Baal, but the true and living God, provided for her, for this pagan woman. The God of Israel provides. As I read this, I was, I, I've also been reading um, a memoir, which I should have read as a young boy, but my kids read it in school, and I don't want them to outread me. So I read a lot of the things that they read and they're reading some things I should have read. And one of them was The Hiding Place, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boone. If you haven't read it again, you need to you need to read it. But uh, Corey Ten Boone and her family, they were arrested during uh, World War Two by the Nazis for hiding Jews in Holland, in their house in Holland. And um, Corey Ten Boone and her sister Betsy were sent to a women's concentration camp just outside of Berlin, Ravensbrück concentration camp. And they came into that camp with a couple of prized possessions. One was a tattered New Testament. And the other was a bottle of vitamins, liquid vitamins in a vial. And, and uh, Corey Tin Boone said that she wanted to hoard this for herself and for her sister. But her sister Betsy was a great saint. If you read the story, you, 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 that comes out 
very clearly that her sister Betsy, who actually died in the concentration camp, was a great saint. That was an example to Corey. And Betsy says to her, we can't keep this to ourselves. There are people here who are sick and dying. There are people shaking with fever and coughing in this dormitory, in these barracks. We have to give them some of our vitamins. And so at one point, Corey Ten Boone writes in her memoir that they, they were giving drops every day to, to 25 prisoners would line up and they would give these drops day after day after day. And it never ran out. And she said she was amazed by this and she said, this is what brought it to mind for me. This is like the widow of Zarephath. And she said, it's one thing to believe this happened thousands of years ago. It's another thing to see this happening now. And she tried to explain it and she tried to rationalize it. And she said to her sister, maybe what happens is there's the tiniest molecule of this liquid at the tip of this bottle. And when we turn it over, it gets exposed to the air and somehow these molecules expand and we get this drop of water every day because of this molecular sort of thing that's happening. And her sister said, stop it. Just ex- don't try to explain it. And she said this, just accept it as a surprise from a father who loves you. Isn't that good? The, these provisions that come are a demonstration that there is a living God a father who loves his people. And that's what this widow of Zarephath experienced. Now, we may never experience a miracle like, like the food never running out or what the Ten Boons experienced in the concentration camp. But can we look back at our lives and see God's provision? The way he's provided for us as a sign of his love? You know, the job that finally came just when you're getting ready to give up? Or an unexpected financial gift just at the time when you needed it. That's happened in our family several times. Unexpected financial blessings, just enough to get us through the month. Um, how about the gift of a friend during a lonely season? God sends somebody your way to bolster your spirits. Um, God is a God of provision, the living God. And there's a promise to us, even as New Testament believers, There's a promise in Philippians 4 and it says 419, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, let's I don't know what you're looking for today, the kind of provision you need. Don't trust in the provision and what you have. Trust in the provider and look to him. He is a living God who does supply the needs of his people as we go to him in prayer, according to his will. Now, the next thing this, this poor widow learns is the power of the great miraculous power of God that's even greater than death itself. Just as one crisis is finished, she finally is eating, her household is, is beginning to, to have the, the, the jug of oil and the flour and they're able to bake bread and, and everything seems okay. And then a greater tragedy strikes. The son of this woman becomes ill. And it says his illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. That's how they determined death in those days. You stop breathing, you're dead. And you make sure that there's no breath there. They didn't have the sophisticated instruments we have today, but they did know if you stop breathing for a long period of time, you're dead. And that's what happened to this little boy. And so in verse 18, she says, it's all your fault, Elijah. God, you're a man of God. God's spotlight is shining now on my household. My sin's been uncovered because you're here. 
and I'm being punished for my sin. And sometimes people feel this way because bad things happen to them. It must be because I've sinned. But she's going to learn it's, it's, God is not doing this because she's a sinner. God is doing this to show His glory and His power over death to her. She doesn't know that. I don't even think Elijah knows that because of the way he prays here. That this is what God is up to. But Elijah does have confidence that God is able to raise him from the dead. And so he takes this, this boy, and I, I think at this point we can say this is a little boy because the little boy is in, the, the boy is in her arms. Some translations say his lap. So I think we can, we're safe to assume that this is a, a small boy and carries him up into the upper chamber where Elijah is staying and lays him on his own bed. He cries out to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, why have you brought this calamity even upon the widow with whom I'm sojourned by killing her son? And then in some sort of symbolic action, he stretches himself, his body, on the body of the child three times and he cries out to God, God, revive this child. Send life back into this lifeless child. Revive his soul. And it says, verse 22, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child or the soul of the child came into him again and he revived. And now he's coming down the stairs and put yourself in the position of this mother who's just lost a child, a young child. And she's hearing the footsteps coming down. What do you think she's thinking? Didn't work. Maybe doubt and fear. Maybe she's daring to hope that something really did happen here. Maybe hope and fear and doubt all mixed together. But we know what happened. Elijah takes the child down the stairs, hands this baby, this young boy over to his mom and says, see, the son lives. The God I represent cares for you and knows what you need. And his power is greater than death itself. You see, in the ancient areas, they believe Baal controlled the rains and the fertility. And if Baal didn't come through, there was another God, the God of death, that would surely come and defeat everybody. And that was the trump card. The God of death had the trump card. And Elijah saying, no, the God of Israel is the true and living God. And she says, now I see you're the man of God. The word of the Lord is truly on your lips. Now, our gospel reading, of course, echoes this story, right? Another widow at the city gates, another son dead. <clears throat> and Jesus, out of compassion on her, verse 13, says to her, do not weep. He comes up and he touches the buyer and that's he's just breaking through a barrier there because you're not supposed to touch. You're unclean if you touch a dead body or close to a dead body. But he, out of compassion, breaks through that barrier and he's interrupted the funeral and everybody stands still. And he says these words, young man, I say to you, arise. He doesn't have to do anything. He just speaks. And the life of God flows into this dead man. He sat up, he began to speak. And again, echoing Elijah, Jesus gave him to his mother. And I like verse 16. Fear sees them all. You know, I, sure there's joy, but it's also like our categories have just been blown out of the water. What is happening here? Fear sees them all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has risen among us. And I think because they, they know these stories, obviously, of Elijah. 
And they think this is an Elijah-like figure. Uh, A great prophet has arisen among us. But of course, Jesus is more than a prophet. He's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. And what he's foreshadowing here is his ultimate victory over death, the resurrection, and then the hope of the resurrection that those of us who are in Christ have. That one day Jesus is going to say to all of us, Arise! And there will be no more weeping. And the hope is that those that we lose in Christ, those who have died in Christ, our friends, our family members, we're going to see them again in a place where there's no more weeping. Because God has power over death. What a great promise. What a great hope. This is why we serve this God. You know, there used to be people, and there still are people, skeptics, who, who uh, say these sort of accounts in the Bible of God raising people from the dead, we can just discount them as legends, myths, fables. Maybe there's a core of something that happened, but it just grew up through the retelling and it just got exaggerated and exaggerated until now we have these legends of God raising people from the dead. And one of the arguments people use to say that that's just a legend, that's just a myth, is this doesn't happen today. We, this is not part of our experience. So if somebody says that happened in the past, then it doesn't happen now, or we can just discount it as a legend. That's an argument that's been made for centuries. It goes back to, some of you may remember, uh, David Hume of the Enlightenment wrote a whole book on miracles, and that was part of his argument. You know, this doesn't happen today, not in my experience, therefore we can discount it. It didn't happen then, it doesn't happen today, it didn't happen then. Well, you know, I, I think it's a little harder to make an argument like that with, with that kind of reasoning today. There's a book that's written by a, a, a New Testament scholar named uh, Craig Keener. And he has a book, it's a two-volume work, on the credibility of miracles in the New Testament. And uh, Dr. Keener has a PhD from Duke, which is, I think, pretty good. It's not like you, you know, he's writing for correspondence courses and getting a doctorate degree. If you've got a PhD from Duke, that's pretty good. That's pretty credible. And anyway, he's written this two-volume work on the credibility of miracles. And one thing that Keener does in his book is he, he, um, he has collected hundreds and hundreds of stories of miracles in Christian history from the early church to the present day. And his point in doing this is to say that there are witnesses who testify to extraordinary things done in the name of Christ that can't be explained by natural causes. Now, you can reject some of them. And he says, I don't necessarily believe all of them, but he says, I'm just building a case to say that old idea that no one's ever experienced anything like that is just not true. Uh, if David Hume had this record, maybe he'd have changed his mind, Keener says. But, uh, you know, God is, is more powerful than our limited experience. Maybe God skipped that on the day of that class was, you know, maybe God skipped class on the day of the Enlightenment. But um, one contemporary example Keener gives comes from his own family. His own family, his wife, who had a, uh, who's from Africa and had a sister who was two years old, was bit by a snake. There was no medical assistance in the village. So. The mother of this child, Kate Craig Keener's mother-in-law, who's still living today, I think, takes the baby, the two-year-old, straps her on her, her back and heads up the mountains where there's a woman there. She knows this woman is a woman of prayer. She's a prominent uh, evangelist. And so she's going to take this baby to this woman of prayer. And en route to 
the moment of prayer, the baby stopped breathing. And the mother estimates the baby was not breathing for up to three hours. Now, what happens when the brain does not get oxygen for that long? I've read, I've read six minutes. Six minutes, no oxygen, and the brain has irreparable damage. But at any rate, this is what's happening. So she goes to this woman of prayer, and they begin praying for the baby, and the breath returns. When they begin praying for the baby, the breath of life returns. The baby's fine the next day. This woman today, the baby's grown up, obviously, and is now a grown woman, and she's fine, and she's working in ministry. And people in the village know this story. And Keener's point is that this happened, this has happened again and again. So you just can't rule out these Bibles as fables if you say it never happens. Because there are many testimonies and even living witnesses that things like this have happened. They're rare, of course. There's a mystery about it, but it still has happened today and throughout Christian history. So we serve a living God, a God of power. A God who has power even over death. So the God of Elijah. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who gives us hope in the face of death. And so our hope is in Him. So, brothers and sisters, we're called to be faithful to this God alone. When other people are faithless. When we're tempted to put our trust in idols. Remember, this God we serve is a God who provides. He's a God who has power even over death itself. Let's pray. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe let's think of, of places in our life where we need God's provision. Maybe let's think of places in our life where we need God's life-giving power. Maybe we're facing... Death, not not physical death, but maybe the death of a relationship or the death of a, of a God-given dream. And we need God's resurrection power to step into that situation. Lord, help us to trust You and not to turn to idols. Help us to look back at our life and see Your provision and power at work. And breathe new power and life into us. Give us what we need, O God, to do your will in our life for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.